chapter 40 is where we're going to be. Isaiah chapter 40, page 511 and 12 in your church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. Some quick housekeeping. So, Lord willing, all spared and Lord willing, next week we'll be back in Colossians. We'll probably be there a few more weeks, three or four weeks, and then off to the book of Jude. That's our next book that we'll work through. So, uh, keep that in mind. Isaiah chapter 40. I think what I'll do is read from the last ver- or sentence of verse 9, last full sentence there, and then we'll read the rest of the chapter. Title of the talk, again, part two. Here is your God. Okay. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arms rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough to burn offering, for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for idols, a craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength Not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my own. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word. This morning, let's have a brief prayer in preparation and anticipation of all that God will do this morning. Our gracious God and Father, what we 
we know not. We ask that you would please teach us what we are not. We would pray that you would make us. And what we have not, we would ask that you would give us only for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the last time we were together, we learned that the people of God in Isaiah's day were in an atmosphere of great anxiety. They were in an atmosphere of great anxiety because of their great sin. Their sin was essentially having a deflated view of God and an inflated view of themselves. Their theology then was far less than what was true about God. And as these things go, right off the bat, it will always be the case in every generation. And let's all be mindful here. When what we believe about God is either wrong and or less than what is true about who God is, it will always, always, always give way to bad behavior. It will always give way to wrong worship and wrong words. And it will always give way to a view of God that is untrue and self-willed and essentially useless, which is what's taking place here. Let me just give you one example as this pertains to our age This week in my readings, I came across an article from the Huffington Post religious section where a well-known pastor from the state of Texas said in his sermon to the atheist community, and here's a quote, planes are leaving every hour, get on one, we don't want you and we won't miss you, I promise you. Now think with me, change atheists to Jews and tell me why that is not a scaled down version of a Hitler, replacing gas chambers with airplanes. One generation might invite them to go, but who's to say that the next generation won't try and make them go? Jesus died for sinful people like this, and we need to get to them. And we need to get to them not with bravado, and not saying stupid things that send them away. We need to get to them with the gospel. Nevertheless, here in Isaiah 40, the byproduct of having a deflated view of God and an inflated view of themselves is that there is an attitude of a constant complaining of testiness, of belligerence, and dissatisfaction. That was verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God. In other words, why do you keep on saying nothing is right and God is going to hear about this or maybe... Somehow God is behind this. Now, loved ones, again, if we need to make application to ourselves, then let's do this. Ask yourself the question. If I am continuously testy, uh, dissatisfied, continually complaining, nothing's ever right, the answer, the possible answer might be you have a deflated view of God and an inflated view of yourself. And because of this, the people here in Isaiah's time had gotten themselves into a position that a belief that God no longer cared about them And God can no longer help them. And therefore you had a people in an atmosphere of anxiety, with an attitude of complaining, which produces a pessimistic life, a life of continuous complaining to God, and or unbelief about God's abilities, or God's control over all history, including their own history. Again, all a byproduct of sin. So having turned away from God, they look to themselves. Which is, this is not new. Because in this, humanity will either turn away from God or turn to other gods or create a kind of God that fits only their scene and only their circumstances and only their needs. Which again, is not the God of the Bible. Simply man either looking to himself and making up another God as we'll discover here a bit later. I don't know if this is true, but I think that's why so many people, at least in my generation, say constantly God is telling me this and God is showing me this and God is impressing me on this and, and all these things are ring, don't ring true to the biblical prescription. 
and all these things don't read to the reality that God has spoken savingly and finally in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, into that ugly context, Isaiah 40, God speaks and God makes an unbelievable, gracious pledge through the mouth of His preacher, Isaiah. He gives a pledge of all things comfort. That's verse 1. Comfort, not, not chumu, is the Hebrew word. Heartfelt compassion. Compassion for my people, says your God. Speak tenderly and proclaim to her, preach to her that her service has been completed and that her sin has been paid for. Now, that is not human. Right? That's not like our pastor friend from Texas. God answers all their grumblings, if you would, with the gospel. And so essentially Isaiah gives a two-part sermon. This is who we are and this is who God is. Now we spoke to this last week. We're, we're going to speak to this again and go just a bit deeper. Our two points are pretty simple. This is who we are and this is who God is. So verse 6, this is who we are. And we probably should be reminded of this every week. I mean, at least for me, I'll speak for myself. Verse 6, all men and all women and all young people are like grass and their glory like flowers. In a word, every human is fleet. A life is fleeting. Man has a moment, but that's it. And that is not enough. So the problem here was that they trusted in themselves and they thought if they could just get to the right resources, I mean, this is so modern, but this is them, that they could get themselves in the right position and for a growing number of people in Isaiah's day, seeing all the foreign lands with all their temporal glory and all their visible might, large cities, large armies, large produce, large pleasures, much larger than what the people of God had, they thought if they could just get to the right God, so they're willing to to turn their back on God... We get to the right God and the right resources, and here we go. We get that, and things will be tremendous again for us. So again, they bought into the spirit of our own age. What is seen now is greater than what is promised later. It's our age. What is seen now is greater than what is promised later. So whether it's the self-help age, people are told how terrific they are, what tremendous people they are, and you should believe in yourself, and you get to the right tools, and there you go. And, and if something goes wrong, or life goes sour, then don't, never mind you the biblical warrant that the gap between God and humans is unbreachable by humans, that Christians are dead people who need to be made alive, Never you mind that. Now, John Calvin in his own generation wrote, If it's the devil's work that exalts man in himself, let us give no place to it unless we want to take advice from our enemy. And there's a whole lot of that going on. It's the enemy who exalts man as man in himself. It's the enemy who says, Find it in yourself. Don't you know how great you are? It's the enemy that says, Make everything, including religion, about you. Because after all, it's all you. However, here they fall foul of the sin of thinking that what is seen is greater than what is said and what was promised. So they saw it. They wanted it. They can't understand why they don't have it. They, they disregard God. They complain. They get depressed. They get angry. And they go out and determine to go get it. Now, in some measure, that was the sin of Eve in the garden. That was the first sin, right? Look how great that tree is. And somehow God is not telling you the whole story. 1 John 2.15, don't love the world. Well, what is the love of the world? The cravings of your own way, the craving for what you see, and the pride in your achievements. But God's people, 2 Corinthians 4.18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. 
For what is seen is temporary. It's all going away. But what is unseen, that's the good stuff. That's eternal. Now, that's verse 8 of Isaiah 40. If your Bible's open, I hope you see that. Grass withers, flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, the ebb and flow of history is inevitable and it's linear. There, no great moment will continue and no horrible moment will last. And Isaiah's word to God's people is that because of that, there's a deliverance coming. In fact, there's a deliverer coming. Verse 9, here is your God. Their minds were locked in the now and through his preaching, he needed to get them to see the big picture here. And so he begins to lay down this principle. Look away from yourself. I mean, come on, be honest. And look to your God. It's his story, it's history and not ours. And so we said last time that Isaiah begins to point point to the deliverance. He begins to point to the deliverer. Beginning around verse 10. And everything, verse 10 and the following few verses, all have been accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. And if you read your New Testament and then check your Old Testament, you'll find that what I'm saying is true. And all these things seek to underpin the greatness of our Savior and the greatness of our salvation that we're told not to neglect. Because I guarantee you, when we stray away, as the people of God did in Isaiah's day, I guarantee you we're demoting our great salvation. That somehow there's nothing more needed than the forgiveness of sins as our life unfolds. Now what we're going to do is we're just going to pause for a moment and try to think these things through. And we're going to say to ourselves, the people of God in Isaiah's day, they're a whole lot like postmodern man and postmodern Christians, some in our own day. Okay, so how do you, why do you say that? Well, think this way. When things do not go near, partial, or how postmodern man may think they should go, then immediately they refuse to take the long view. They refuse to take what God has revealed about himself. And the postmodern Christian refuses to take into consideration what God reveals about our calling. And so we won't bow down and we immediately begin to blame and or question God. So we question his existence, his might, or his love. But here's the thing. That is not new. That is Job. Job chapter 38 to an extent. And we know this because of Job 38. Job chapter 38, 37 chapters of Job and his three friends... And that other guy just keeps telling about Job's suffering. They all have their word. And then finally God speaks. The Lord speaks to Job out of the storm. That's chapter 38 verse 1. And he says, are you okay? No, he doesn't say that. Listen to what he says. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I mean, does that not send a chill? Down your spine. Break your, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And so God was saying, so you've got this whole thing turned upside down here. If there's questions, it should be on my end and not so much your end. And so then what God does is he, if, if you would, he goes, Yul Brenner from The King and I. If you've never seen the movie, you need to see it. And, and, and God breaks out with a whole litany of who, who, who questions to Job. Who stretched out a measuring line across the earth's foundation? Who shut up the seas behind the doors? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? I mean, just think of that. Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who, who, who? And so Job replies, being finally brought to his senses after God reveals himself, much like what Isaiah is doing, he replies with repentance and he says, I'm sorry. Chapter 42, and verses 2 and following. I know you can do all things. Nothing you want can be stopped. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And Job says, surely I spoke of things I don't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. 
And then Job says, you said, listen now and I will speak and I will question you and you shall answer me. My eyes had heard of you and now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So we have a picture of a God here who doesn't take kindly to those kinds of questions. So if you fast forward it to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul then for the Christian... For those that love God, he gives the ultimate answer for all of life's difficulties and all of life's sufferings so that we won't do what the people of Isaiah did and constantly complain. And so what Paul does is exactly what God does is he gives his own list of who. So Paul kind of goes Yule Brenner on his readers. This is Romans 8. So Romans or Isaiah 40 is pointing to the future gospel. Romans 8 is applauding and declaring that gospel. And Paul starts out with his who's. He who did not spare his own son, but give him up for us all. How, he, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who, verse 34 then, is the one who condemns? No one. Christ died. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God? And here's where we need to pay attention. Trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. And all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present nor future, nor any power, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, here's what we need to take away from this. In both examples, God is to be worshipped, and he's not so much to be questioned. He is worshipped because assurance and contentment is found in the ebb and flow of life only as we consider God in his glory and the full picture of his salvation. You see, this is what we need to know. The full history of of many of the people here is that they're going to die in a foreign land. And most of them will never see life as it once was. Okay? They're going to die in a foreign land. It's going to be horrible. And they're never going to see life as they once knew it. Does that mean God has somehow failed them? No. It means that God has promised them here that the best stuff is not here, but it's coming. So as we think about us and try to, us and try to make application here, you know, for you, child of God, the trend of your own circumstances in which we would all have to admit to a degree that the majority of our days have been amazingly graciously good. So when those circumstances begin to turn south and sour, they have no bearing on the greatness of God. They have no bearing for us to to question the eternal plan of God. It's no bearing to doubt for a nanosecond the love of God for his people. And And to some measure, it has no bearing about your walk with God. And loved ones, why is it so necessary to know this? Well, it's necessary for at least this, that we can be patient in difficulties, that we can be thankful in prosperity, that we won't be a pain in the neck to others when we're prospering with a mind that is convinced that no matter the personal circumstances or no matter the global circumstances, God has a future safely under his control. So these past few weeks, I was thinking a lot about the Christmas story. It's only 11 days since we've removed ourselves from Christmas, isn't it? And it feels like forever. And so I was thinking about Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel, the first 17 verses, you have 46 people over a 2,000 year span. Every one of these people were the earthly ancestries 
ancestors of Jesus' line. But they were completely different people. They were different spiritually. They were different morally. They were different in personality. So you had some who were heroes like the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Ruth, and David. You had some people who had shady reputations. Rahab, Tamar. You had many very ordinary people like Hezron. In fact, most of the people were ordinary. Hezron, Ram, Achim. Do Do you know who they are? Others were evil. Manasseh, Abijah. But here's the issue. They were all sinners. And here's the issue. God works in history. is not limited to their failures and to their sin. And he works through ordinary people. And what is happening to them is part and parcel of the plan of God. And it's just the same case in our circumstances. Whatever they might be, God's purposes are still being accomplished. His purposes are still and will still unfold. So that's the point. So even in the most difficult of circumstances for us this morning, and perhaps some of you are in those circumstances, so maybe you constantly battle the same sin over and over and over again. And, and maybe you're the kind of person that you think, you never say this publicly, but you think, you know, somehow God has an end for me. My life doesn't really matter to him, and God's unfair to me. And again, you would never say that publicly. But in your heart, you, you know it's true. You think it's true. So what do you say? Well, you say, let the God of the Bible speak to you this morning. Let the God of the Bible speak comfort Verse 1, comfort to my people. And and if you're his people, what looks like a bloody nightmare at worst or or just maybe a horrible maze of a life that you can't connect all the dots to, then don't run to yourself. Run to your God. Because the Almighty God, I can guarantee you, has all the dots connected already. Let me tell you this for your encouragement. He has all those dots connected because for the Christian... The greatest problem of your life, your sin, has already been solved. The greatest predicament of everyone else, however, has not been solved. And that's why we offer them the gospel and only the gospel. Now, as you think about those things, not only does this make the last two verses of Isaiah chapter 40 verses 30 and 31... Not only does that expand the meaning of them, that these become far more than just a nice scripture to give us some strength for the day. But if you're going to say all this, if you're going to believe all this, and you're going to let this set the essential direction of your life, it demands a clear picture of the greatness of your God. And that's exactly what Isaiah does from verses 9 and following. He gives a precise, clear picture of the greatness of our God. So he says, again, verse 9, here is your God. In other words, he turns their gaze away from their self and he turns their gaze to God. You know this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, I can remember as a young kid, is that just a squishy church talk thing? Is that just gooey? squishy just to kind of settle us down a bit or is it real is it real you turn your eyes upon Jesus and things dramatically get better and change well let me give you two examples one personal and one from another generation I can tell you with absolute certainty that when I wake up in the morning and those days that I have where I hate everybody and I hate everything I know, I know most of you probably don't have those days. But when I wake up like that, let me tell you what I do. 
whether I'm pacing the floor or hands to my face, I turn my eyes upon Jesus. And things begin to change. That's me personally, but how about a lady named Charlotte Bronte, who some of you might know, she wrote the book Jane Eyre. She has two sisters, one Emily, one Anne. Anne is dying of tuberculosis. Emily's already dead. And so she writes in her personal diary, she writes this. I avoid looking forward or backward and try to keep looking upward. The days pass in a slow, dark march. The nights are the test. The sudden wakenings of restless sleep. The revived knowledge that one lies in the grave and the other not at my side but in a separate sickbed. However, God is over all. And then she continues. One often derives scant comfort from the human scene. Amen. To maintain poise and assurance, we must turn our eyes on high. The dependable order of heaven suggests the reliability of God who marshals the planets and lives of men. It is tranquilizing to stand amid eternal ways and await serenely the fulfillment of God's time, God's plan, and God's heaven waiting for a city whose maker and builder is God. Well, that'll preach. That will preach because it's true. It's true to everything about this existence in a fallen world. So as Isaiah begins to tell the people of God, verse 11, if your Bible is open, we said this a bit last week, God's power is precious. God keeps his sheep close to his heart and he has a special gentle eye towards the young and the immature and the weak. And then we said, verse 12, that God's power is, is vast. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Answer, no one but God. And his knowledge is omniscient. Verse 13b, God never had to learn a thing, never had to go to university, never had to seek advice. And then we learn of God's size. He's, he's omnipresent so that the nations are like, a du- like dust. Verse 15, verse 17, a drop in the bucket. Think on that for a moment or two. Now, despite God's vastness and God's largeness, despite that, Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature has been clearly seen. And if you, if you're, if you were paying attention to the reading, that's what was going on in verses 21 and, and 22. It's like, these are rhetorical questions. You know the answer to this. It's not that someone didn't tell you. You know it in your heart. You know it in your mind how great God is. That's a, an implication of how we were ri- Created Romans 1.20, so that people are without excuse. So even though that's the case, man in his rebellion turns his back on these truths, and he, as he does these things, he creates his own gods, if you would, with a small g. And that's what's happening there in verses 18 and following of Isaiah 40. So Isaiah asked then the most crucial question. This is part of the great questions of a life category. Verse 18, to whom will you compare God? So as you order your days, to whom will you compare God? Now, who is like God? Or if you want the exegesis on this, what is it that you are treating as God? That's what Isaiah is asking. What is it that you are treating like God? Who or what is it that you are deriving your identity from, your value from? And here's the issue. What is it that you can't function without? And if it was to be taken away from you, you would just crumble. Again, what is it you can't function without? If it was to be taken away from you, it would just crumble. And loved ones, there is only to be one answer to that. And that's not cruelty. That is theology. And that's Isaiah's question to the people of his day. 
And it's a question to us. What is it that we're treating as God? And every one of us here has or, or have, if you would, has the potential or have a false God, a God we worship. And, and I hope we recognize this. I, I recognize this. I made a, week, a, li- a list this week of all my false gods. And by golly, some of them were very, very shiny false gods. But Isaiah says this is futile. So the question again is, what is it that we're treating as God? So immediately our minds come to, to perhaps maybe like a third world country in India. And you see the people on the streets, they're skilled craftsmen. They're carving away some material, maybe wood, and they're making statues. And the people come along and they purchase them and they take them home and they begin to venerate them and they begin to worship them. And the modern mind looks at that and says, oh, how silly, how foolish, how primitive. Until we begin to think and we begin to be honest and those of us maybe that are carving out a career for ourselves. And we are devoted to this line, sacrificing to this line, and we're driven with a mind that says, please don't ever leave me. Giving it all the hallmarks of something that we would worship. And so we worship our career. Maybe it's not your career. Maybe it's your education and you're carving out a degree for yourself. And you spend enormous amounts of time and effort, time to get that grade, to get that honor, so that you can have that career. And of course, good careers are wonderful. Good grades are wonderful. But watch yourself and see if the devotion and sacrifice and drive that you have for them is so much so like the worship of a god. So that you can't even take your day off. You can't even get your mind off the thing because it becomes to you something akin to religious devotion. So our idols could be those, it could be our children, it could be our grandchildren, it could be sports, it could be our spouse, it could be the desire for love, it's all you think about. You want the love of a man, you want the love of a woman. Your idols can be just a flat out unwillingness to change anything about you. You're fine the way you are. You won't grow. Your idol is pleasure, constant pleasure, or of course money. And somehow everything in life, when it should come down to Christ, always comes down to money. And I've been in pastoral ministry long enough to see that that line of thinking thinking messes with everything. Families can't function normally, health issues, pride, sadness of heart, grumpiness of soul, tight-fistedness, and conclusions of life that are just kind of fixated on hedonism. Now listen, please, carefully. Careers, wonderful. Education, wonderful. Kids, spouse, money have no inherent evil in them. Which is the point in verse 19. You see it there? As for an idol, a craftsman crafts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. In other words, as with precious metals, with the idols, so the precious things in our lives are always that which are shiny and more than likely will become our idols. So the more important something is to us, the more likely it will take up the ultimate significance in our lives. Isn't that true? The more important something is to us, the more likely it will take up the ultimate significance in our lives. And here's the problem. A good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing. Again, a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes the ultimate thing. So we ascribe it ultimate worth and ultimate value and ultimate status. It becomes wrong. Why? Because it can't deliver. It isn't forever. And it is not God. It will slip away from us. And when it does, then what? Because these things, as good as they may or may not be, they are not God. And God knows this. And he knows why it's right and good for us that he be the only one 
that we serve as God. So we'll have to say goodbye to our careers, won't we? We'll have to say goodbye to our education. We'll have to say goodbye to our spouses. It's sad, but it's true. Our children, our money, will feel the emptiness of hedonism. But the word of God, Isaiah 40, verse 8, the word of God, therefore the person of Christ, pointing to the future, the living word, the everlasting God, verse 28, will go on forever and ever and ever. Therefore, he's the only one worthy of our highest affection, our highest devotion, our highest commitment, and so on. If you get that right, Everything, including our thinking and living, will have a proper place and more and more fall into place, which is not the same thing as saying, stick with Jesus and you'll never know sorrow, you'll never know sadness, you'll never know sickness, and you'll never know fear. That is irrational, and that is untrue to personal history, and it's untrue to biblical history. You look like you need a story. Tuesday night, I was leaving here at the end of one of our meetings, and I thought I did the right thing by starting my car a few times during the day because it was so cold. And poor little Joe started his car and warmed it up and had to wait and wait and wait and wait. And poor little Joe was driving 20 miles per hour home. And people were passing me up and I was a little bit afraid. I worked all day for you, Jesus. I got here at 7.30. I didn't leave until 7.45. What's going on? I didn't do that. I called my wife and I said, would you pray for me? <laughs> it's not saying that, but it is saying what can separate you from the love of God, child of God? What can separate you from God's heaven where all the best things are? What can separate you from eternity with God and his people? Answer, in Christ, nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. So here's my personal test. Not that it matters, but it, it could help a bit. When I begin to think of the loss of people, posts, or possessions and become so frightening to me to lose them for reasons that all have to do with me, then I begin to understand for me personally that at that point I have broken commandment number one and replaced God with another little shiny idol. Why? Because nothing in all creation, in other words, the whole created order, the, the whole entire universe, which our old space-time continuum, nothing created can ever replace the creator as my best thought by day or by night, can replace the creator as my, to one who belongs my highest praise, my highest effort. Nothing in all creation then will be able to separate us, me, from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, loved ones, those of us who live in the age of the new covenant, those of us that are Christians, then here is your God. Here is your God, a crucified, risen Savior. So when the crucial question of verse 18, repeated in verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Answer, who has conquered sin, death, and hell? Who has conquered all the things we fear most and the things we are most troubled by? Who has felt the nails upon his hand, bearing all the guilt of sinful man? Who, who, who? Verse 24, rulers? Right? Great Babylonian rulers or, or great leaders from the West? No. Verse 24. No sooner do they come into office, they're removed from office, and God blows on them, and they wither away. This past election, the President of the United States stayed at the hotel where my brother was general manager. The call came in three months before that whole thing took place. My brother was, was sworn to secrecy. He couldn't say anything to anybody about anything. The president had the top three floors. He had his own private kitchen, thick 
bulletproof glass installed everywhere and on and on. It was magnificent. He sent lots of pictures. It was terrific. But that scene is a scene which is no longer. And in the course of time, that leader, as with all leaders, their existence will cease. So we can't look to them. We can't look to God. Why? Because whom, to whom will you compare God? Who is the everlasting king? Whose government expands and expands and expands and expands till no end? Now, why do I labor this? You see, this is, this is the God that we are told to wait on, verses 30 and 31, right? If you're going to stay in place, if you're going to stay in place and wait and hope in him and the expectation of his work, we better have confidence in the one we are waiting on, the one that we are hoping in. And the God who calls us to hope in him, to wait on him, has revealed himself to all. He creates all, he conquers all, he controls all, he's incomparable, and he brings to his people his comfort. So as we look at the year 2014, it's still freaky just to say it. And we consider our own hopes and our own fears and and the eventualities of our life, all the good that may happen, all the bad that may happen. Who among us would or may need a word of comfort? Everything's not all bright and shiny for some of us, right? The pain of a lonely life, the great and overwhelming fear of a sickness returning, the absence of employment when we find ourselves inadequate for the task, or we're just drowning in our sin. What do we do? Well, I commend to you the Lord of glory. I say to you, behold your God. Wait on him. Hope in him. He helps those who know themselves weak. He helps those, if you would, that would just sit still for a moment. He will give clean, big, bright, righteous strength to his people. So they will, verse 31, soar, run, walk, knowing their sufficiency is only in their God. One last quote from Benjamin Jowett. He was a teacher, theologian in the 19th and 20th century from Oxford. Listen to what he says. It's so honest. In our personal lives as well as in public affairs, few of us escape periods of depression. Physical and mental fatigue have a deeper cause than a tired spirit. This is one of the trials of of waning powers which come with advanced years. It requires spiritual treatment. Age, like youth, is a blessed time. It totters its steps and also sometimes in its thoughts and words, but yet it may preserve a sort of continuity of mind by trusting in God. Judging from my own experience, I should say that the greatest difficulty was to get above moods of mind which vary from day to day and really arise from physical causes, i.e. physical weakness or frailty. When we feel ourselves weakest, it is a new strength to think of the unchangeableness of God. Isn't that a great line to take into the new year? When we feel ourselves weakest, it is a new strength to think of the unchangeableness of and we'll personalize it of our God that will do that will do let's bow I sure thank you for your attention if the men who are serving in communion will come forward let's pray together our God and Father surely the world changes and surely all that was once strong will prove untrue and weak 
And it is only in you, Father, the everlasting, immutable, forever strong God that we look to now. And we would ask that you would give us the grace all year long to continue to look that way, full tilt to Christ, to your Father in heaven, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask these things. Amen.